Welcome to the one within all to another episode of Interverse. I'm your host, Chance, and it's my utmost excitement to remind you that the existence we share is pure magic. And as a vessel on the sea of expanding consciousness, you are an expression of universal ether circumnavigating its own boundlessness. As I've progressed in my own similar journey, the realization of the all-encompassing ether has become more and more evident in all areas of life, life-affirming knowledge and wisdom that I explore. Like the great Wilhelm Reich explains in his aptly named book, Ether, God, and Devil, the ineffable supreme being that men have called by countless names throughout the ages, the omnipresent and omnipotent potential that is paradoxically clear empty and void this divine isness and sacred i amness is the very same universal medium of existence that true philosophers scientists and mystics have called ether or the quintessence the zero point field that we call universal ether is the akashic record of all things and because of its non-linear non-physical and boundless nature the truth is that our bodies as containers of this ether, are pure and complete fractals of the entire cosmos. Because ether is multidimensional beyond the concepts of separation, space, time, and any other measurement, the empowering truth is that our portion of ether is, in a holographic sense, the same and inseparable from the universal whole. And knowing this will help you to become aware of your own holiness, the immense power and responsibility of our individual healing journeys that affect the entire universe, and the potential for knowing and recognizing the patterns of the Pleroma within our own living energy fields. Today's guest has decades of experience in the realms of biological physics and etheric technologies, and as an innovator of holistic health practices, he's provided guidance, support, and powerful creative products helping turn many seekers into finders along the course of his illustrious life. His name is Dr. Bear Lando, and you very likely have heard his words of wisdom on many great podcasts out there in the Ethernet, not the least of which is his own excellent show with co-host and friend of Interversers, Mike Winner. On their alpha casts, they bring forward highly resonant thinkers, creators, and problem solvers who are ushering in the new wave of wisdom traditions into our collective consciousness. And their company, Alpha Vedic, is a source of many supremely helpful supplements, tools, and learning opportunities that are perfectly aligned with our Interverse Tribe's mission. In this episode with Dr. Lando, we'll be delving into the workings of his etheric cosmological perspective, exploring the layers and dimensions of our bodily existence, learning about radiesthesia and advanced dowsing technologies, and the senses, tools, and abilities we have for discerning the primary reality beyond the illusory perception of division and separateness. So make sure you guys check out the show notes in the episode description for links to alphavedic.com, Dr. Bear Lando and Mike Winner's podcast, The Alpha Cast, and any other things that may need to be linked, including ways to support this podcast. Very excited to be bringing Dr. Lando on to the show finally. So here we go. Yeah, let's just jump right into it. Dr. Lando, welcome to Interverse and thanks for being here, man. Hey, Chance. Uh, good to be here and, and honored to be with you. Heard a lot of great things about you, so it's uh, great to connect. And uh, I'll just follow your lead. We can talk about whatever. Yeah, right, right. I figure, like, why not just start out, come out the gate swinging? <laughs> and maybe you could discuss for us and describe, paint a picture of, you know, your current cosmology 
of life, the universe and everything where you're at right now with it. I know these things evolve over time as our perspective grows and all that, but you know, how would you answer that question? If someone's like, so what do you think life, the universe and everything is? (laughs) Yeah. You know, um, once you have a few years under your belt, uh, you get a lot of hindsight and hopefully you don't get frozen in the past, but you see where your past has led you in present time. So you can keep the expansion process going. We'll say, so that's pretty much where I'm at. And, uh, you know, I always trace my origins back to just being a, a little kid playing in the woods. I was always sort of a loner, like to be out in nature, but sports, uh, you know, is also a big thing. So it brought me into contact with my, uh, you know, my childhood friends back then and all the way through college years and competitive athletes, athletics and, and, and so forth. But, uh, really nature and athletics, uh, were, um, I think what, uh, shaped everything I've done in my entire life because, you know, in athletics, you're really using your will force. It's what, where the will force meets your vehicle. And, uh, you know, if you have a little bit of savvy, you, you don't just fall into a, a pure jock mentality, but you start to connect some dots and realize that, um, you know, you can, uh, have a great amount of, um, say about what goes on in your life, uh, in your body. And, uh, also, you know, you, what I understood, you know, with my training in early years, I was always a little bit scientific about it, especially when I got to the college levels and, and post-college, um, you know, I'd always, uh, put down something on paper as far as my, uh, my training program for the season, preseason and so forth. And uh, before I really got to implement it, just had it on paper, I started to realize my body and circumstances started to change just by setting that intention. And then that, of course, uh, you know, was was a great realization and uh, made me understand that what we consider form and materialism is nothing more than congealed energy. And we're the ones that create the energy in the first place. And of course, that transferred into my whole career, um, you know, as a physician and now, uh, you know, into my laboratory work, which I spend a lot of time doing and also as a full time farmer. And I don't see uh nor do I try to differentiate between any of those things, sports, medicine, agriculture, uh, laboratory, alchemy, it's all one and the same thing. And when you get some certain principles, you know, when you can wrap your mind around those things, you, you got the whole ball of wax, basically it's all the same deal. I love that answer. Yeah. We are looking at the everything is everything <laughs> perspective. That's pretty much how I roll too. I mean, when you've got your functional bodily movement capacity retained later in life, like many people are seeming to lose, um, you know, there's, I feel like there's just so many ways that we get our, our peas and carrots divided from each other when really we, it's delicious to scoop them both into the same spoonful. <laughs> like you can't, shouldn't be intelligent. If you're also athletic, you shouldn't be interested in academics. If you are a footballer or something like that, but the truth be told that the body follows the mind and really in a basic sense, a lot of athletic people have that understanding without needing to go into like deep levels of uh, a spiritual exploration they just realize at a certain point that they can psych themselves up mentally and their performance will be different 
And the writing things down, that reminds me a lot of a recent guest who you, I'm sure, know, Jim Gale, who told a similar story about <laughs> writing things down and watching how they come to pass. And yeah, I've been finally diligent about that myself. And some amazing things have shown up that I wrote down as intentions to uh, create or receive or achieve. And they seem to just come out of left field, out of the, out of the ether. I'd say out of the blue, but out of the ether. So yeah, how do, how do you, um, how do you feel about ether as uh, the, con- the thing that is being congealed? The, um, you know, how would you describe ether? This has been a big dis- big topic of interest for me lately, ether and plasma. I'm super into sound healing and uh, electric body mechanics. So maybe we could get into talking about your perspective on how ether works for and how we can integrate that understanding into a a healthier lifestyle. Yeah, that's, that's a big, um, that's a big wormhole there. And we could go in all sorts of directions. Uh, you know, in other cultures, they might've called it prana or chi or some such thing, but it's a living intelligence and alchemy. Uh, they differentiate between four different levels of ether, starting with, um, um, you know, heat then light then chemistry and, and down to the life process, what we think of as form. Uh, in the chemistry lab, uh, we understand that those four levels can be uh, manipulated in certain ways in order to drive three essences that make up uh, everything about the, 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 the human, the animal, mineral, and plant kingdom. And, um, you know, to understand ether, it is a canvas that we have the prerogative of creating anything we want on. And, of course, the way to create more... Um, efficaciously is to understand how it works, which gets into old school alchemy, you know, because they discovered certain processes and worked with them, but then also connected with them on an inner level. And it became a, a, a very much a spiritual practice at the same time. But then also there's a realization that this isn't just a static canvas. This is a living intelligence in and of itself. So you're not just in the chemistry lab, for instance, or in, in, you know, when I'm out farming, you know, I use the same exact principles. You're not simply uh, putting things in motion on the canvas and expecting, uh, you know, a sequential outcome. It does kind of work uh, like that on one polarity, but then on the other polarity that, um, you know, that living canvas itself has a little bit to say about it. And so you, you learn to flow back and forth, communicate back and forth. And, uh, you know, it becomes more of a dynamic in that way where you're not impeded as far as your creative process, but you actually have options opened up to you that maybe wouldn't have occurred to you otherwise uh, once you start to uh, develop that communication skill between the ether and yourself. I love that answer because communication is key. I mean, you're wearing blue right now, so that fits. Uh, we've got this living intelligence within our body vessel. The ether fills up our body vessel. That's why you can use it as a synonym for prana, life force, chi. It's even in the universal sense, the Akashic record. So what I found through working with, um, you know, are you familiar with Eileen Day McCusick's biofield um, anatomy and her sound healing work? 
Uh, sorry, I'm not. It sounds like I should be, though. Oh, wow. Yeah, you guys should have her on uh, Alpha Vedic big time. You would really love what she's doing. But I know you've I know you've spoken on Soul Luckman before, right? Spoken with and about Soul Luckman's yeah. work. Yeah, good friend. Yeah, so Soul's work was a inspiration to Eileen's in many ways, I'm sure. But she has developed a an anatomy of the biofield where very specific regions of the aura space around the body contain specific types of information. And it's very similar. I wouldn't say similar, but it's like built off of the foundation of the Eastern model of chakras. It's a really amazing system. Mm-hmm. And I've been using it effectively for a couple of years now for, um, you know, energetic balancing aura balancing, you could call it. And what is so key about it is that I, at least in my opinion, what is happening that makes it so effective is that you're helping connect one part of you're connecting the body's ability and your energy field's ability to communicate with all points of itself with all other points of itself. And would is, I mean, would you agree that that's basically how the body heals is that if it's in full communication, every part of itself with every other part of itself, then it can do what it needs to do in the processes of healing and wholeness. Yeah, there, um, there's no such thing as disease or anything to heal in the first place. And uh, we only get those uncomfortable symptoms, you know, that people used to come to see me for when there's a lack of something. It could be lack of uh, something on the ground, you know, as far as the, the, what we would think of as uh, inorganic elements. It could be a lack of uh, awareness. It always starts there. And uh, you're right, there is um, a, a real definite, um, I, I hate to call it subtle anatomy because there's nothing subtle about it. But of course, if you're not aware of it, it seems subtle when you first start entertaining those ideas. So um, for you know, many years, I, uh, you know, I, I was trained in conventional science and medicine first. I hate to even call it conventional because it's just been around a short time. And then, of course, you know, you mentioned alternative. Alternative actually to me means what should be conventional, but everything's been kind of, you know, flipped, uh, you know, mirror images. So um, I practice also a lot of uh, techniques in radiesthesia. And in radiesthesia, everything from uh, using dual impedance antennas, you know, developed by uh, physicists that allow you to ping in on any uh, of the 18 dimensions of a waveform. And, you know, waveforms are all that there is basically uh, created by our own consciousness that then precipitate into form that gets back to the ether and, and how that steps down and all the different levels of manifestation. But when we're talking about uh, the subtle anatomy with uh, biogeometry, same thing. It's a wonderful tool. Uh, you can go in and differentiate between those energy fields. And if you go into the original thoughts, you know, that, that we are responsible for in the first place to put those electrical events to create our thought-based universe, you know, in our individual life and, and also as part of the collective, then that creates a toroidal field. And then that steps down into four levels, kind of mimicking, uh, you know, what we would consider the ether. But then we would talk about as far as uh, those four levels relative to a human form, um, you know, we're talking about the mental plane, the astral or the emotional, the etheric, and then the physical body, finally. And uh, 
when you're using radiesthesia, you can tune in on all those planes, we'll call them, uh, but also many subplanes within each plane. And also you understand how those electrical vectors created by your thought uh, create, you know, a compression of informational fields in one direction and simultaneously uh, decompressing in the other direction to create a moment by moment. Uh, sequence of uh, movie frames, we'll say, which create our simulation or however you want to think about this thing. But what happens is um, uh, when you're focused on one part of that cycle versus the other, rather than just right at the equator where they both come together, then you can kind of crystallize and, you know, really start to think you're these materialistic forms. But what we're talking about with the two-way compression is a toroidal field, you know, just we'll just loosely call it that. So back to radiesthesia, sorry if this is getting long-winded, but uh, with radiesthesia, we can see in which way things are skewing. First of all, I would use a Lecker antenna, which is, again, a dual impedance antenna that was created by an Austrian physicist that allowed me to see if that toroidal field was skewed you know, in the northwest direction or the southeast and so forth. And every single one of those um, distortions would tell me different things about that body. Are we, you know, dealing with things more on the astral plane, you know, things that are emotionally induced? There's always that component, but, you know, sometimes you have to prioritize in clinical medicine. Sometimes it has to do with the endocrine, uh, you know, neurology, lymphatics, but we would be able to pinpoint surgically with those techniques by way of assessing the subtle anatomy, we'll call it. Um, and as maybe what your friend is, you know, up to there, I, I don't know enough about it, but um, you know, that is a very definite anatomy that can be um, tuned into by pinging off of waveforms with real instrumentation and having not just feedback, but very verifiable feedback. And then when you do, I would do a, a laboratory medicine as well, uh, but I would take those laboratory assessments, what we consider chemistry, and extrapolate them into electrical vectors. And there's a way to do that mathematically. And that would give me the same exact information that I was getting off of uh, you know, radiesthesia techniques. So I had a way of triangulating things. The third uh, way was, you know, with my hands and other different techniques where I could discern just with my own sensory apparatus, uh, what the body was telling me energetically. And then of course you look at things anatomically too, and, you know, you put it all together and you've got a really good picture of what's going on in that body. In fact, it's all written across your face once you get a little bit of a, you know, experience doing that sort of thing. I love this uh, entire field. And to describe a little bit more about like what I do and how this fits in as we maybe talk more about radiesthesia and radionics going forward. So. I was just over the weekend, a little scatterbrained because I was just at a camping festival all weekend. I'm sure, you know, you, you go to, do you go to music and sky with, uh, with Mike? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, maybe oh. this year they, uh, he keeps trying to persuade me to get out there, but I've got a whole farm to run. <laughs> and I mean, just getting away for one day is like huge. Yeah. You, you don't need to get away to get out into nature. You're already there. Yeah. Some of us yeah. are living in, you know, middle of a town and it's really big deal to go out into the woods and camp for a few days and get to see other people's art. But I was, so I was at an event over this previous weekend. And while I was there, I 
sort of developed a new technique with my tuning forks to be able to work in a, a loud, crowded, busy environment, you know, cause mm-hmm. my normal procedure would be quiet, calm and have a long time to work with them. And so uh, using dowsing rods, like L rods, I would find, I basically asked the question of which energy center or chakra is there this individual bottlenecking at, so to speak, because I, as I've experienced life, it seems that we go through uh, awakenings or further openings of each chakra in almost like an order and pathway that's unique to each person, which I correspond to kind of like everyone's own melody in the jam session of the universe, the one song and our bodies are the instrument. So, you know, we know the chakras correlate to, to tones and keys and, and vibrations. So anyway, I'll ask the question of like, show me which one of their energy centers is the one that is their current key to unlock their next level that they're working on. And then I'll measure each one. And the one that is I'll step away from their body, hold the rods and walk towards them and think of each chakra one at a time. And when I get to the one that is the one, it will come up short. Like it'll be closer to them instead of further away. And that's how the rods talk to me. And so then I sweep a tuning fork. So Feggio to corresponding to that chakra on the left side of their body at the edge of their field, like six feet away and move it in close and as I move it, I'll hit a pocket of resistance somewhere, usually the first place I check <laughs> because it's all an intuitive thing. And that spot tells me where the spot it happens at tells me how old they were when the trauma happened, that they're currently integrating and uh, what flavor it is based on the chakra. So here's an example. Someone came to me and they were like in pain, they're in physical pain. So my first thought is this is probably a sacral chakra issue because the sacral chakra governs feelings of pleasure or pain in the body physically. And I hit the uh, static at the very edge of their field, which corresponds to like being in the womb or being born. And then I hit more static really close right up to their body. And so I, uh, I, she was talking about how the pain or like her stomach and her gut was like clenching and unclenching as I moved the fork through her field there And that's like tension and uh, negative energy releasing is what she was feeling. But I asked her about the, you know, what happened to you when you were born? And has anything happened to you recently in life too, corresponding to sacral chakra? Because there's clearly something going on. And she had had some sort of birth complication when she was born that caused her to be in physical pain the rest of her life. And she had recently had a C-section when giving birth. And the C-section scar, scarification was causing her pain. So anyway, all of that showed up in a very specific places in her field and is measurable. So I love what you said about how this subtle energy is not really that subtle at all. <laughs> you can eventually get to the point where you don't even hardly need the tools to zone in on it and be like, okay, you seem fixated on the color yellow right now. I can kind of guess where you're at. <laughs> so it's very cool, but I wanted to after t- telling that anecdote, you know, I'd love your thoughts on it if you have some, but also to maybe define radiesthesia and talk about some of the tools for radiesthesia and radionics for those out there that, you know, there may be a little newer to this and haven't been able to catch up on the last many decades of uh, what you would call like fringe ether physics and the amazing science that's flown under the radar of the mainstream. 
<laughs> sure. Uh, let's see. Why don't we go with uh, what you're talking about first? You know, you're talking about using a dowsing rod and just tuning in. Uh, well, the fact is, is you're using your own senses and, and you know, it's just a little appendage, you know, that you call a dowsing rod. But um, what I learned along the way is the most sophisticated technology possible to master is your own body and your own sensory apparatus. Uh, early on, you know, I, I did a lot of different training. One of them was uh, in osteopathy, old school osteopathy. And one of my uh, favorite teachers in the past was a gentleman by the name of John Pierre Burrell. He was uh, from France. And uh, he pioneered, you know, very advanced techniques and visceral manipulation. So when I first started studying with him and I went through quite a few years with him, uh, I would watch him do things. And I just figured he's just one of these tapped in characters and, you know, th- there's no way he could, you know, teach other people to do that. But after going through his sequential training, after about five years, you came to that same level of um, sensitivity uh, as, as he was able to, now he always said, you have to earn your way into the body. So you had to know your anatomy better than the surgeon because you can't just peel away the skin, the way the surgeon is, you have to actually have to be able to discern, you know, blindfolded, so to speak. But by the end of that, uh, what you're able to do is not only take a person, you know, we had final exams and, um, you know, they just bring you a person and you weren't told a darn thing. You weren't allowed to talk to the person or ask any questions and you just had to figure it out. So just using your hands uh, with the techniques we had learned at an advanced level, you would go right to that part of the body. Uh, you'd find it on your own. You you know exactly what you're dealing with. And you could also differentiate between physical, emotional, mental. You could date it based on the energetic feel. So uh, what we're saying here is all of us have that ability just in our own hands to be able to feel energy, uh, make a distinction as far as what kind of energy it is and how old it is and, uh, you know, just tell everything about it. But then even more important to be able to project energy at the same time in order to put things right. So we really don't need any of this other stuff. I like radiation, and laboratory medicine, a lot of things just because it's kind of fun. And, you know, that's mostly for my own entertainment. But we really don't need anything other than ourselves. So uh, what was the next question? Oh, how about uh, tuning for just a little um, comment about that? You know, I was trained in traditional acupuncture, uh, kind of segued more into meridian therapy because it was more authentic compared to what some people think of as traditional Chinese medicine, which is nothing traditional about it all. It's just chairman Mao bastardization to kind of eviscerate the spirit out of the ancient art and uh, Japanese meridian therapists kind of preserved that better than anybody else. So I, um, you know, did some apprenticeships in that area. But I also went from needles to tuning forks along the way because the tuning forks, of course, are a great way to acoustically resonate through those meridians. And I would get a little bit, well, I still do, you know, when I play with it. But um, what I would do is uh, make the typical assessment as far as points, you know, that I might want to stimulate, you know, uh, differentiate between you know, core and distal points and things. And, and then maybe using five element, you're understanding that elements like fire, you know, you're talking about C sharp, you're talking about an electrical note, 
I mean, a musical note. And if you go back into the original Bible of Chinese medicine, Sean Han Lun, which you're talking about, uh, when you're reading the elements there, uh, they were discussing actually musical tonation. So uh, the ability to acoustically deliver those with ways of uh, tuning forks, if you know to under, how to understand that in your diagnostics and, and with the, how to correlate them with the elements, it's very, uh, very refined and very accurate. And so if I had to maybe sedate a fire point, um, you know, I would go through all the whole process, find the point that I needed to uh, sedate and then uh, use uh, a third, you know, Sam sedating fire point. So I want to sedate C. So then what I'm going to do is create a third and uh, use two uh, tuning forces, just like playing a piano, you know, uh, you know, counting backwards to, you know, three and creating a third and then you sedate or use a fifth to stimulate. So using music, and I always uh, felt still do that music is the most advanced thing that you can study or understand to understand the universe. Um, with tuning forks, you can get really, really clever with those. So I just wanted to throw that in since you're, uh, since you're using them yourself, so they're very effective. And then you can use them in, in many different ways. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, versatility with using those. So um, birth trauma, you know, is another thing I'll just comment because you brought that up. Uh, most of us are suffering from some kind of birth trauma. And, uh, you know, very often in my work, I had to go back and address that and also deal with the umbilical scar, you know, because most people, they cut the umbilical cord too early and then there's other complications with that. So there's ways that we really had to address that. That was a big, big thing. Okay, finally, radiesthesia. <laughs> uh, radiesthesia is, uh, if you could think of a radio station, that is operating by uh, getting pinged by an antenna that's receiving a signal from somewhere else. That's, that's radiesthesia. That's all it is. And all you're doing is now, instead of uh, just being confined to those cruder electronic forms of, uh, you know, radio waves, now you can go to those more refined waves. And that brings us back to the ether, because uh, when you're uh, working with the ether, there's different levels of electronics, um, you know, and informational fields operating on each one of those levels. So now with radiesthesia, uh, you have the ability just like uh, turning on your radio, you know, and using a little dial, you know, in the old, in fact, um, let me get something for you here. Okay. Um, if you were to use an old fashioned radio in your car and you, uh, can you see that? Okay. And if you were to move the dial to get to your favorite station, then, you know, the dial uh, was moving this behind the faceplate of the radio. And then it's going to get on a particular, um, you know, increment on this dual impedance antenna. That's all that's behind the dashboard there. And then you, uh, because of the incremental setting on these dual rods here, which is, by the way, the same way your DNA works, uh, you know, it's to send and receive signals. And then, um, you know, you're receiving, you know, whatever radio station you want. Now you're talking about a dowsing rod, right? 
So a dowsing rod can also look like this, which is a type of radius seizure device. And when I use this particular one, and remember I was talking about getting into the energy fields and maybe seeing which way distortions are happening in the toroidal field, and then you can understand what that means anatomically, emotionally, or mentally for that patient. Um, with this, if you get into waveform physics, you learn that there are 18 dimensions to every single waveform that creates uh, any kind of manifestation and it can those waveforms uh, relate to sound to different types of density and colors and so forth and this was created by an austrian physicist it's used in medicine it's used in engineering to build bridges and skyscrapers and uh, so what you do here uh, because this is dialing in on uh, different planes that are a little more refined than just the crude waveforms that are coming from the radio stations. I can uh, get into any level of those planes. And then uh, based on where I set this on any of the, this is 18 increments to accommodate those dimensions, then I can go in and study uh, any level of those 18 dimensions of a waveform to see what's going on. I can use it in the garden and agriculture. I can use it on somebody's body. And like I said, engineers go into different land forms where they might be, you know, uh, thinking about building a bridge or something to see what the quality of the, of the strat is and the land there to see if it's a good bet. And so uh, with this here, um, if you set it to a particular increment, and then if you use it like a dowsing rod, now you're not just using a dowsing rod, but you have it on a waveform setting, one of those dimensions, and you are going to get a reaction based on whether or not there is something going on on that dimension of that particular waveform or whatever you're requesting about. The cool thing about these technologies is that not only are they infinitely scientific in the truest sense, but also it requires that you calibrate your own awareness with the instrument. So unlike other technologies that plug into the wall and, you know, uh, number one, put an impedance of dirty electricity between you and what you're trying to study, that's there's none of that interference. And also at the same time, you get to develop your own inner awareness to create a, a congruity between yourself, your own sensory apparatus and what this is picking up on the outside. So just like uh, in the alchemy lab, when you do laboratory procedures and you get the hang of it, now you're really working, uh, you know, with the ether itself and having that two-way communication. So with real science and what real scientists are supposed to be doing is understanding how things work and in a very, you know, left brain nerdy sort of way, but then at the same time developing their inner awareness and creating that communication skill. So what I really, uh, uh, got the best results of, you know, in agriculture and medicine and everything I've ever done is by using instrumentation, scientific methods that were a two way street. And then in the field of um, biogeometry, for instance, uh, now we're we're dealing with a different kind of um, radius seizure. And this, uh, you know, looks like a common pendulum and, and, you know, by using developing your intuitive abilities, uh, with, uh, just a neutral pendulum, you can discern quite a bit 
Uh, but these, just like that antenna I just showed you, there's many settings and things that will then uh, allow you to set in on all sorts of things, including, you know, a 12 uh, component uh, color spectrum. And then uh, by way, now you're going to get more of a, a deliberate or a specific pinging than just a neutral pendulum like some people use. And you can ask more uh, diversified and specific questions. And also, just like the Lecker antenna, you can create that two-way communication between yourself, different levels of the ether. And then there's many, many other tools that advance biogeometry uh, that are were borrowed from uh, sketchings on the uh, internal... Um, pyramid chambers and things, you know, where they uh, knew exactly what they were doing. And Dr. Kareem, who developed biogeometry, who's an engineer and also one of those very special people on the planet, and also having the ability to uh, work with the Egyptian government, he's been, uh, you know, allowed to go into some of these chambers that other people can't go into and rediscover this technology but then also not just um, rediscover what they were doing, but go a step further, develop new technologies based on radiesthesia, where now you can uh, tune in or ping on certain waveforms. And then depending on the response of a radiesthesia device, whatever kind you're using, there's others too, uh, you know, then you can get very specific answers and then also create uh, an energetic projection that will put things right in that energy field at the same time. Sorry if that was too long. Oh no, never apologize for too long. I'm here to learn from you. <laughs> like this is great. And uh, that's exactly the introduction and explanation of these things that I was really hoping to bring forward to the people. What I love about these tools is that they are ancient tools. I mean, you can create a dowsing rod out of a stick from a tree that has the right Y shape to it. But we've added in this new layer of settings, if you will, based on our own knowledge that we've discovered over time. So, yeah, what you're saying about it being a two way street, that it's not just a machine that's outputting. I feel like that's crucial because the current materialist paradigm is like, oh, wait, you guys had Michael Wan on recently. And he said something to me that really <laughs> stuck that I like to repeat all the time, which is. Are you living from, are you living your life with the outer world directing your inner world or the inner world directing your outer world? And in a, in a true sense, like there's no separation between the two once you, but to get to that point, you need to start experimenting with inner world lead outer world. If you've only been on outer world lead inner world, if that makes sense. And these materialist tools of measurement that don't take into account the power of the observer and of consciousness to influence the outcome. Yeah. They never do go. They never cross that threshold, even though they're doing, they're having a massive effect on their reality all the time. And they just don't understand that. So I guess my question in all this is like, because we are applying knowledge to the tool by adding these settings. Do you think knowledge makes these things that are considered quote unquote, woo more effective? Because as I have gone forward, the more of a, what I would call an intellectual scaffolding that I can climb on whenever I'm doing anything energetic, if you will, or with it, with the intent to bring about wholeness and healing or not healing, but <laughs> to, to uh, 
reverse the lack, if you will, <laughs> to add the light that may be lacking in some sense, that uh, knowledge of how, how it works, quote unquote, seems to make it all more effective for me. Would you agree that that's, uh, that that's true? That knowledge is in itself part of what's lacking in terms of creating our, our deficiency or the illusion of disease in many ways? Yeah, I would distinguish between information and knowledge. Um, we can get information from many sources, uh, even uh, from sources that, you know, I was prevented uh, access to when, for instance, I was in medical school or some of my past schooling. Um, but even when you get a good teacher that's giving you this so-called alternative information, you still have to apply it and have an experience. Now, when that information becomes experiential, that's what I would uh, call knowledge. Uh, there are some very special teachers out there that uh, give you a download and the experience at the same time. Uh, I was fortunate to have a couple of those characters, one in particular uh, that. Uh, gave me experiences that could not be explained logically. So um, that, you know, alters your perception greatly and changes your belief systems about things. So, yeah, knowledge is really, again, it's, um, it's real science because it's both sides of the equation. It's information that we would consider, um, you know, what the, the left side, uh, you know, we'll just, we'll just call it two polarities. And, uh, you know, then uh, the experience side is, is what we would call the subjectification of that information. And of course, uh, subjective has become a dirty word in the scientific community because at all costs, they, their whole job is to pretend that we're not in the room. Uh, you know, so, um, you know, sorry, we create this realm ourselves. We're creating and recreating it every single moment, uh, literally every moment. So to pretend that we're having a double blind experience, it takes us, you know, experiment that takes us uh, out of the process uh, altogether. It's, it's, it's impossible. It's ludicrous. Uh, now there's, there's some value to setting up uh, experiments like that. I do some of them myself when I'm just going through a learning process. But again, when you are, you know, just maybe setting up control groups, uh, versus, you know, other groups that you want to expose to some particular element to see what the effect is. Uh, now when you're discerning the, the difference between the outcome with the two groups, then you're using different kinds of, uh, technologies and um, and ways to discern the effects rather than just, uh, you know, taking out of account that, you know, you are part of the experiment yourself. Yeah, you can never remove the the self from the equation. Everything is the I am energy. So you can't really pull that out. I love it. And you're saying we create the realm every moment, which makes sense perfectly and why the most important cosmological framework that any culture ever creates. And the one that resonates through time to forever, if there's any memory of the culture at all is usually their creation story, because in a fractal sense, that story isn't about 
what happened way back when in the so-called beginning of time, which I don't really even buy that there's such a thing as the beginning of time. <laughs> I look at it more like existence exists and it, existence has always existed because that's what existence is. And like the idea of, you know, there's no disease, just a lack of something. There's no nothingness. There's just existence. <laughs> you know, you can't shine darkness into a room of light and expect the darkness to make the light go away. So I love that that idea in a hermetic sense that in the law of polarities, if you will, that there's really no there's really no opposites. There's just the one thing and the lack of the one thing. And that definitely applies to how we can start to understand the framework that there's not really disease at all. There's just the lack of whatever the body needs to be in a state of balance or wholeness. Right. So anyway, back to what my point was, is that the cosmology of the origin story of a culture or the origin story of the universe. I really have been deep into the uh, Egyptian ones myself. So it was fascinating when you're talking about the guy who was going into the sort of forbidden chambers of the great pyramid. Um, these, these creation stories give us if they are really reflective of nature, which it seems like all the major mythological ones are, if you're able to decipher the symbolism, that they're telling you the story of, literally every moment in a fractal sense that the be <laughs> there is no beginning. There's just the eternal now and every moment is an eternal beginning in that sense. So I love that. I love that we're in all these fun places and I have a lot of questions possibly to go into, but the one that I want to do before we get too far away from it is do you know why or how the, Radiesthesia scientists have come up with the idea of 18 dimensions for waveforms. I'm assuming that when we say dimensions, we're talking about like sort of directions of oscillation, the way that we experience forward, back, left, right, up, down, inside, outside. Uh, can you speak more on these dimensions for waveforms to Not, left yeah. ether into matter? Sure. Not so much spatial dimensions. Uh, we're talking about qualitative dimensions, things that give the characteristics to what we think of as physical form. Um, you know, one of my uh, great areas of study is was from Walter Russell, who I think did the best job so far of understanding things from a waveform perspective. And he uh, is the one that differentiated between. 18 waveforms. And I'm, I know it's been done before. It wasn't just him that had the bright idea because there's nothing new under the sun, but he was able to understand that and bring it forth. So it was understandable for the Western mind. So uh, qualitatively uh, is exactly what you are tuning into with radiesthesia because in what again, going back to what we think of as scientific conventional uh, perspective, you're just looking at the reductionist process of breaking down form into smaller and smaller bits and then inspecting those and expecting to find the answer there. But you aren't uh, really appreciating that there's a whole nother level of uh, living awareness, you know, that is an interaction between creator and the living ether that gives these qualitative aspects, you know, the attributes that really make life um, possible and animate 
on this physical plane. And so with that, you know, we, again, we have sound, we have, uh, you know, life that's produced by that sound by way of resonance that also, you know, it plays over and over all these dimensions and attributes in every single one of our senses and uh, the way our bodies are shaped, uh, the way the the three kingdoms in nature are formed. Um, you know, I think we could all agree these attributes are what we experience and are qualitative. Radiesthesia uh, makes a science out of differentiating between those qualitative aspects. And then people like Walter Russell were, uh, you know, able to understand it, extrapolate all the way up to the... Um, waveforms to precipitate that in the first place and then just um, do a taxonomy of uh, dimensions based on a waveform. And when you think of a waveform, you know, when we're in school and we look at textbooks with uh, the little squiggly waves there, you know, like if you're looking at electrical waves, you know, in life, what we're talking about is, uh, those projections from that emanate from our thoughts in the first place and create the polarity that creates the tension between the polarities that creates an electrical resonance that then based on the quality of the thought and uh, the emotional content that, you know, it picks up by way of uh, passing through the astral plane, which gives it more characteristics and more velocity to pop into the matrix in the first place. Uh, when we're looking at that waveform now, it's going to take, uh, it's always going to be kind of, a spiral uh, moving sort of affair. There's really nothing moving ever. Uh, you know, pure consciousness is just is. But again, uh, electricity creates that um, illusion of movement, illusion of dimensions, illusion of characteristics so that we can have this experience in the first place. But those waveforms now will start to create different uh, shapes in uh, the spherical, original spherical nature that is going to give it, you know, uh, a certain kind of rub in a certain direction to give it the characteristics uh, behind the intent of the thought wave in the first place. Uh, I don't know if any of that makes sense, but. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, on from there. I'm mm -hmm. following for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, what I think about with this is like you say how Russell points out that and I agree that the uh, the oneness or the pleroma is stillness and you have this collapsing of waveform duality at the point of the infinite where uh, the void is also the everything. Right. And what's interesting about this, I really like Carl Jung's Seven Sermons for the Dead, where he describes the mythological abraxas as which is sort of like the the demiurge, but not in a negative sense, uh, just the the force that creates the physical reality, which we don't like, I don't like the whole pop culture Gnosticism where like reality is a prison and there's an evil God who created it or anything. But the idea of the artificer, if you will, the force that generates all this is very interesting because when you, in this Jungian uh, poetic text, if you will, he describes how in the Pleroma, all things and their opposites meet and cancel each other out. But you cannot cancel out effectiveness or power with ineffectiveness or lack of power. So to me, this is where that electricity comes from. That when everything is in balance and the scales are perfectly aligned and most things sort of cancel each other out, 
that this one aspect of just pure power and effectiveness still continues to exist. And that's where I think the existence generates from, you know, that's the generative principle itself. But what we're talking about with um, these qualitative dimensions, it makes me think of the correspondence between a color and a frequency and a shape and how they're really descriptions of a one thing, you know, right? So human beings, even I think at an earlier time before whatever type of collective trauma really put a schism between our left and right hemispheres of our brain, if that's what happened, that this idea of synesthesia where you would see the color or the, you'd see the number five as blue and it would taste like something. I don't know how people actually experience it, but is that kind of what's going on when we're describing these uh, 18 qualitative dimensions for waveforms that it's really just the one waveform and somehow we have created this schisming and splitting of a prismatic experience of different senses, but we're sensing the one primary reality that is not differentiated before it hits our body computer vessel that does all that dividing into various qualities. Does that make sense? Uh, completely. And there's, there's no way you can divide things into parts in the first place. Again, it's the intention of the creator as far as what they want to experience. And um, as you say, there was a time in different um, epochs where people were able to um, hear with their eyes and, you know, uh, you know, every sense was capable of detecting what every other sense, uh, you know, was able to discern. So uh, in fact, uh, Steiner uh, uh, kind of riffing off the work of Goethe, uh, they created uh, ways to get back to that level of discernment with your senses and understand that matter is nothing more than congealed energy. And that um, if you really, with a little bit of practice, start working with both polarities of every sense, because again, we always go into that polarity and there's always a third, this gets back into the alchemy lab. You know, you have the, the mercury, the salt and the sulfur and uh, which, uh, you know, differentiate the three aspects of our human form as well. You know, the, the, the soul, the body, and, and, you know, the prana, the, the living intelligence that, you know, is a glue that, you know, it's like the ether. So, um, our job, you know, really is to understand how those three attributes are created and then also understand it's uh, a, a bouncing back and forth of the polarities. And for instance, if you're looking at something, um, you know, one part of your eyesight is the projection from your inner vision. The other part, that would be like the sulfur, the soul polarity. And then the other uh, part of that, the opposite, if you want to think of it that way, with the salt polarity, which is like the nerve reception of just, uh, you know, picking up incoming impulses from the outside, which allows you to 
understand the mathematical order of externalization while at the same time using your inner projection, what some people would call your imagination, but using it at a very high level and, uh, you know, creating the, uh, not the duality, but the, the two forces working side by side. Now, when you uh, are outside in nature, uh, you know, you can use or anywhere, anything you're doing, uh, you can use your sight, you can use your hearing, uh, you can use all of your different senses where you're using both sides of the equation and getting, again, uh, a dynamic two-way communication, which is going to paint a totally different picture. And uh, Goethe and Steiner, for instance, talked about how that was our natural state when we were toddlers. And then there's a certain point where that kind of shifts, you know, when we get more outer programming. And then we kind of lose that ability to use them both as a side-by-side balanced uh, sensory apparatus. And what they did in their work was to um, give some clues on how we can retrain ourselves back to that toddler status, but even better than back then, uh, go full circle with a full appreciation, having lost it for a while, and then having more of a conscious um, ability to understand our external world that we weren't capable of as toddlers. And I believe that's where mankind is right now. We're just around the bend, uh, you know, having not really lost it, uh, but, you know, maybe forgotten some things. And now we're picking up these things, putting the pieces back together again. And, um, you know, again, with more of a full appreciation and a much greater awareness will come from that. You mentioned, uh, you know, maybe things happening when historically there was a more of a schism between the right and the left brain. Um, you, you know, there's something to that, but I would maybe add that it was more dramatic when we lost that connection between our heart and our mind, you know, those are the two brains. And when we understand the brain as a living energy, in fact, it's a sevenfold flame. And then when we can light that up consciously again, and then unite it with the inner fire of the heart. And when that becomes one, and then we can in turn unify that with the living intelligence that animates our whole self and the animation in the first place, then you've completed that triad. And then you have um, the ability to really see what's been in front of our face the whole time. Good, 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 uh, good directions to go from here. I like to, I didn't give you the heads up on this, but I like to take a hard break between the first segment and the second segment, kind of like how they do on shows like Crow Triple Seven. So for the uh, first hour, people that aren't on our Rockfin or Patreon, can you go ahead and give us a rundown of the Alpha Vedic shop and what you have on offer for them in terms of the many ways that you've uh, created awesome supplements and things that they can tap into? Yeah, let them just yeah, let them sure. know everything that you, you guys are up to and uh, okay. what you want them to know about. Um, you know, the real infomercial I like to give is that um, we're not like a vitamin sales group or a nutritional, you know, uh, uh, company 
in a way we are, but the products that I have created that, you know, uh, make up the product line are an exemplification of uh, what I've learned in my lifetime and also what we do. So we have a, I'll just use the term permaculture. It's, it's kind of a overused buzzword these days, but we have a real agricultural based operation. We have a, you know, a farm that is uh, producing medicinal herbs, uh, foodstuffs, all sorts of things. But what makes its way into a lot of our products is the uh, herbs that we actually grow and other things. So the whole point is to understand true permaculture, again, is completing that circle of self-sufficiency. And what we are creating is a prototype or decentralization so that every community can take our little operation, morph it into whatever works for your community, you know, in a small five to 10 acre kind of doable format and have multiples of these in every single community. The commercial uh, aspect of it is, does complete the whole uh, self-sufficiency loop because, you know, we grow and do all the things we do. It's, it's very time consuming. It takes a, a, a lot of resources. And then with what we produce, then we turn around and create a commercial vehicle that then allows the operation to keep on going. And besides just uh, that whole permaculture model self-sufficiency, uh, every product is based on a real alchemical mindset as far as understanding how uh, no matter what you take, whether it's uh, it's a meal at home or a nutritional supplement, it really should be feeding all three attributes of yourself and put together, designed in an intelligent way so that they, you know, all the parts work in unison and have, a, you know, create a real whole rather than just, uh, you know, uh, a number of herbs that, you know, are trending and known to do certain things. So you kind of throw them all in one formula, which is like what 99% of all the nutritional stuff out there is. That's not the way alchemist or original Chinese, uh, you know, uh, herbalist, uh, you know, they didn't work like that. They had a whole energetic basis for everything they created. So that's what our product line is. That is awesome. I actually, Really love that explanation of why you don't just throw everything into the pot together. <laughs> and uh, we'll, maybe we can talk more about that. But I have a ton of notes for the second section of the show from based on things we've already discussed. It's going to be a lot of fun. But I've got to say thank you so much for your time today. And I'm excited to see you on the other side and get into more about Maybe your knowledge on kinesiology, discuss this old school alchemy idea, um, and also birth trauma and uh, placenta stuff. I have a lot of questions about that. So we'll see what all we can get into, probably more than all that. But thank you so much for being here. I love your knowledge and your energy and can't wait to keep going. Pleasure.
right, everybody, that was a really good show, right? <laughs> hey, so it's time to, I guess, talk about what we talked about. So welcome to the outro part of the podcast. I appreciate you for making it this far. And I hope that if you're new to the Innerverse world, that you'll maybe consider checking out some previous episodes we have in the archive. If you landed here from the AlphaCast community, we do have a great conversation with Mike Winner from earlier this year that I do recommend. And also, we've got a super fun Telegram group like the Alpha group does. So check out the show notes for links to all that stuff. And welcome if you're new. And welcome if you've been following Interverse for a while. I appreciate all of you. Got so much love for the community. You guys make this way fun. Really, really fun. So I particularly loved this uh, second hour of the talk with Dr. Lando. And so before I talk about some of the things that it makes me consider, I'll just give you the rundown of what we talked about. Because if you are just a free listener and you're only hearing the first hour of this and you're curious, you'll be able to get the second hour of this show and every other podcast episode I do that has an extension by joining on my Patreon for five bucks a month or the Rockfin subscription. The premium Rockfin subscription is 10 a month, but you get everybody's premium content on the whole Rockfin network. So that's a pretty sweet deal. Like I said, you can find links to that in the show notes, the episode description or from my website. And all right. So it was jam packed in the second hour. Of course, like any other conversation, the first hour warms us up. And then the second hour, we get into the deep, deep woo. And Dr. Lando's version of woo is quite grounded and extremely, extremely interesting. So we first we talked about the blind will see, which was the idea of compensating for physical degeneration in our body and improving our sensory capacities through the Ability that we have to sense things through spirit. The idea being like, you know, when you're out of your body, you still have the ability to see, hear, touch, taste. When you're in a dream, you have all those abilities. So how could we bring and translate that into our physical bodies and compensate for potential damage that the body may take, maybe it's taken. And then my favorite part of this conversation, I think, was following that when we discussed ascended masters and angelic beings. That's big. I really was curious what Dr. Lando's thoughts were on that concept. We've heard of beings like St. Germain and, of course, your classics like Jesus and Buddha. So what's Dr. Lando thought, think about all that? And it was very, very enlightening stuff. And then we talked into some Steiner-esque territory like the Luciferian and Aramonic influences in our world and how society has developed through those. And we talked about ascension cults and controlled opposition and the spiritual awakening, controlled awakenings. The Then we talked about the Enneagram and the holographic, <laughs> this is a great line in my notes, the holographic expression of the original prismatic multiplication of source. That's a word salad for you, but we did talk about it. And then I had to ask him what he thinks about placenta magic. If you've been following Interverse for a while, then you know that we discuss the uh, placenta sorcery and the power of the birth trauma and connecting with the Mercury or Thoth or our divine twin that may be a spiritual expression of our protector at birth, which is this placenta and other other materials that are part of our body until it gets cut off. And then we discussed the, the resonance and entanglement of the blood and the body. That was fascinating. He described some experiments he's done 
measuring changes to the blood of somebody that's the blood's been removed, but then things are done to the body of the living person and the blood reacts very, very deep stuff and has pretty profound consequences if it's accurate, especially in context of things like the afterbirth and what is done with it after we're born. Then we discussed the chemistry of blood and the alchemical sulfur of that. The nervous system as salt and the uh, bioelectricity in our body as the mercury. So some fun alchemy there. Discuss the manipulation of sexual energy by the controllers of the realm. And then also maybe my other favorite part of the whole talk was at the end when I asked him about crystals and minerals and those as life forms and what he thought about using them and how they work. So all in all, it's a phenomenal conversation. And I hope you guys do tune in to the plus extension because it's highly, highly worth it. Then for me, I mean, this is the type of stuff I live for, especially since I've become become a practitioner with tuning forks and the sound healing stuff that I do, which, by the way, I've announced this in a few other places, but I'll just say it again. The giant tuning fork that the community crowdfunded for me has arrived and I've been using it in sessions. I did not bring it into the room with me to show it to you right now, but suffice to say, I have a huge, super shiny tuning fork (laughs) that I've been getting to try out in client sessions and it's been absolutely incredible. Kind of like using a a big snow shovel to clear your driveway instead of a, a little hand shovel. Not that the little tuning forks are ineffective. It's maybe not the perfect metaphor because the small forks are still, you could do everything you need to do with those for sure. But it is fun to have the giant one and it feels very powerful. And if you guys haven't heard about that work I do with you got you in the community as clients and one-on-one sound healing sessions, it's been a very busy week for me. Uh, I've had, I think, four sessions already this week. And so that's a lot for me because I really don't like to take on more than one in a day, two maximum. And some of the stuff that's happened in those sessions has been quite profound and remarkable. like. One client, for example, without being told anything about her condition or her life story, I was able to accurately assess that she'd had painful problems with her ankles throughout her life, which she confirmed and told me she'd actually broken her ankles five times total, one three times and one two times. And then I was able to also accurately assess bladder issues that were going on with her. And I will say that every single time there's like a mind blowing prophetic prediction that the forks helped me make about someone's condition. But I will say that it's always there. The information's always there. And uh, depending on the situation, sometimes it comes through like that. And it's pretty profound. The point is I'm waving tuning forks around in my living room on a Zoom call with somebody. And that type of information comes through and huge balancing and healing can result from bringing consciousness and awareness to things that are stuck or not, not being processed properly. So I'd love to do some sessions with you guys out there. Hit me up, chance at interversepodcast.com or find the information about sound healing on my website. Or if you want, you can also get into uh, Oracle card readings with me. I have Tarot and I Ching on deck, (laughs) unintended. And that's a lot of exciting stuff too, because you get amazingly synchronous divine messages from source in the form of the reading with the cards. And We get to channel a message from your higher self and find out exactly what is best for you to hear in that time so that you'll reflect on what helps you level up and grow and go forth with more clarity and confidence about your superpowers and your role in the world. 
So please, let's do that. Let's work together. It's going to be awesome. There were more things that I would have loved to ask Dr. Lindo about. We really didn't touch on kinesiology or biogeometry as it's applied to, well, first, let me back up. Kinesiology is like connecting with the intelligence of the body and speaking with it. Very, very interesting subject. And then biogeometry, which we could have touched on, has to do with the energetics of shape and form and applying those types of magic to the growing of plants and and building of structures. Really awesome stuff. I was also curious to find out more about when he mentioned Japanese meridian therapy, but we didn't quite get to it. I'll hold on to these notes for a possible future show. An old school alchemy. I'd like to know what he meant by that. <laughs> and uh, the pyramids, man, not just the Egyptian pyramids. I wanted to ask him about, you know, sleeping under a pyramid and growing things under pyramids and what he thought of all that. Yeah. So the, the things that were left on the table for me to think about in the outro I guess would be some reflection on the Aramonic and Luciferic Luciferian influences in the world. And how I see it is very similar to how Wilhelm Reich puts it in the book, Ether, God and Devil, having to do with there's basically two ways that a human being can get unbalanced in life or in their consciousness. And it's like left side, right side, right? Or you can be unbalanced on both sides. And the amazing thing is the mystic and the mechanist, as as Reich puts it, are really kind of the same thing. The mechanistic, mechanistic minded person tries to find all the nuts and bolts, pieces and particles and reasons why everything works and how it fits together and keeps trying to reduce down and down and down and find where the where it all comes from. What's the original? Right. But the more that we try to sweep all the paint off of the canvas of the universe and figure out what's the ground that it's all splattered upon. We find that there's no ground, there's no canvas. And that's what ether is all about. It's the, it's the formless, it's the, the emptiness, the void, the nothingness that all things come from paradoxically. But in the same sense, the mystic does the same thing. They really, you know, like the mechanistic person believes that there is this primary fundamental physical reality that everything comes from and that consciousness being an epiphenomenon of circuitry of the brain and all that. And the mystic is kind of the same way. They're looking to things that they can't actually know and saying that they know them. <laughs> the mystic and the mechanistic, mechanistic person can both get really trapped in dogma. And the mystic side of the dogma is in a lot of ways more insidious because it is so much more subjective. But they're both subjective when you understand that reality cannot be separated from the observer. And the, the subject and object collapse into the zero point field that it, that both emerge from. So in the Aramonic idea, this is what you would call the, the mechanistic side. The Aramonic mechanistic side is really, at the end of the day, driven by this destructive force that Steiner called Aramon, but could be just a metaphor, maybe not a being, whatever, whatever floats your boat, I guess, decide how that works for yourself. It's something within us. So I guess it's an aspect of being maybe a being, but this idea that both the mystic and the mechanistic individual tend to land on, which is that reality is artificial, fake, simulated, a prison, all of these ideas. It, it's pretty common. I look at it like 
the one side, the mystic side comes down on the idea of reality being like a spiritual construct, a prison for souls and that the Demiurge created it. It's a fallen world. Whereas the mechanistic side, the Aramonic side looks at it like a simulation of a computer, right? Computer simulation universe. And they were really both saying the same thing. Simulation theory is just like a materialist version of the ideas of pop culture Gnosticism, as I put it, that whatever the case, whichever flavor of it you take, it's still like, this is a fallen world or this is some kind of a trap for souls or prison and we need to escape it. And then that kind of really devalues and degrades the experience of our, our physical bodies and in the natural world and the natural universe. And while at the end of the day, there is likely some truth or a way of understanding these things with truth to it, like, that we are spiritually simulating our experience in the same sense that all is mind and everything is mental. And that's a hermetic principle, but the balanced approach would be like, okay, it's both mechanistic and spiritual. It's (laughs) in either way. So like, I guess the point that I'm making a long roundabout uh, way to getting towards is that I realized during the conversation with Bear, Dr. Lando, that both the Aramonic and the Luciferian sides are trying to escape what they perceive as a simulation or a prison. And the Aramonic side, the idea is to escape the prison by annihilating it, annihilating the universe, removing the conditions, changing and altering the conditions through which life can exist and emerge and thus freeing souls from the cycle of reincarnation within this construct. But on the Luciferian side, it's pretty much the same idea, but the idea is to like become, to vibrate at a resonance beyond what can be contained in the construct and escape through an ascension. So either way, it's like you're either trying to dig your way out and come out the bottom, or you're trying to climb your way up and come out the top. In either sense, it's not really balanced. And I think, a healthier perspective or what I have come to accept and enjoy really is that existence is all that exists. And so here we are, and this is clearly existence. And why would we want to not exist? (laughs) If there is more beyond, if there are hidden hyperspace kingdoms, well, I don't see why we couldn't access those and, and travel beyond our current limitations without needing to destroy what we're in. I mean, that just seems silly. Why would we limit ourselves to the belief that in order to experience a wider bandwidth spectrum of what is real, that we needed to annihilate or escape from all we've ever known as real? I would rather layer more on top of it. I would rather recognize that all the vibrations are from the same source and that we're in the exact same soup of vibration that we'd be in if we altered our mode of perception and were able to expand the bandwidth, the frequency bandwidth of the reality that we're in. Why do we need to get rid of or amputate the part that we're aware of to get to a a level beyond above or below? Seems to me that we would want to just expand and keep or keep the foundation that we've got and make that a strong foundation. But these are just, you know, my random thoughts. Uh, Also had a lot of fun right before this conversation with Dr. Lando going to that festival reconnection in near St. Louis, Missouri. Really wonderful time. It's where I got this fancy tunic as Mike Winter put it as my 70s Jesus tunic. And that was really awesome. 
I learned a lot of things in particular, some interesting stuff about crystals uh, and, and amulets, black crystals in particular. And actually that ties into some work I had with a client earlier this week. So feels good to tell the story of this and I've maybe told it elsewhere on the air, but I'll tell it again for anyone that's interested. How I came across this tunic I'm wearing, this shiny, radiant, white, 70s genus, Jesus tunic. <laughs> so I was at this music festival and like a lot of events like this, where it's a big, huge, energetic soup of a lot of people's positive energy and love and great intentions, but you're coming into it from sort of the standard lifestyle of living by yourself in isolation, only really seeing other people when you visit family or friends or the grocery store. At least that's what it's been like for me. And so getting there, it was a little bit like this happens to me every time I go to a big peak experience event, but there's like a a shift point where before I'm not fully in the zone or in the flow yet, not adjusted to the energy. And then after where I'm like, boom, in the zone, opened up, ready, ready to go in flow. And so I was in the pre zone zone. <laughs> and actually earlier in the week I had had my aura photographed and it was showing up a heart chakra block. I was like, okay, working with this. I feel that I can feel that I'm not feeling my feelings as well as I ought to feel them. That would be a heart chakra block. And so I was looking for how to overcome that. And I was walking to the creek. I was going to the creek on a hot day on Friday at this festival. And I passed by a friend of mine named Taj. And he just looks at me without saying anything else. And he's like, that Moldavite you're wearing has a dark aura, man. And he just kept going, like didn't even give it a second thought. But to me, that was profound because I realized right then, whoa, I have a heart chakra block according to how I feel. And according to the aura photography I had done a few days prior, and I've been wearing this amulet that sits right over my chest and it looks black. Actually, Moldavite is green. If you hold it up to light, it's translucent, but it also looks pretty black. And I hadn't cleansed, energetically cleansed this Moldavite for quite a long time. Also a big realization. So I then looked at it closely and I was like, well, the, the silver of the wrap is really tarnished and dirty. And I've had this thing for a long time. It's kind of beat up. It's not in, it's damaged. <laughs> so this is not a radiant, beautiful pendant that it once was. It does kind of have a darker energy to it in the sense of it's not, you know, it's literally not shiny. So I took that to heart <laughs> literally. And I, I walked to the creek that I was going to anyway, and I intended when I got there and I did cleanse it in the water, in the flowing part of the water and did like an energetic blessing on it. And then I put it away and didn't put it back on and put it in my pocket. And the next thing that happened after I left this creek, I was shirtless at the time. So it makes sense why this would happen maybe. But I see a friend of my name, Sam, who is a nomad of amazing, <laughs> amazing range of wandering. So I had no idea he was going to be there. You can actually look up Sam and his company, which is where I got this tunic from, at Infinity Hoods. Look up Infinity Hoods. I know he's on Instagram. He's probably got a website and he's an awesome dude. He he sells the fabric and, and woven tailored garments from his friends in Guatemala and he helps them support their families by going out into the world and finding people who are the perfect fit for their incredible handcrafted clothing. And he sees me and he's like, yeah, hey man. I want to gift you a shirt. 
and I wasn't wearing a shirt. So I was like, sounds good. I won't turn down a gift from universe. I appreciate that. I love his clothing. So he had his back to me and he was looking at his rack of stuff. And it was funny because he was set up on the path in the middle of the woods. He wasn't even at the main vendor row. So it was funny to even run into him. And as he was kind of pawing over the different shirts he had on his rack, I was looking at this white one, but he couldn't see where my eye line was because he had his back to me. And he then takes it off the rack and holds it up. And he's like, how about this one? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> that's the one I was looking at. Sweet. Because he even asked me which one I would like. And I said, dealer's choice, right? But I was definitely looking at this one and he picked up on it. And so he he gifted it to me. So kind, so kind. And I appreciate it greatly. I love it. You'll probably see me wear it a lot. 70s Jesus chance. And so anyway, the point of that whole story was I had this crystal over my heart chakra. It is a dark crystal that definitely, it doesn't mean it's evil, but it has a powerful absorbing and even sort of blocking barrier type effect. So we'll get to what I think that means when I talk about the client session that connects to this that was later on. But I traded that quote unquote dark aura crystal. Thank you for the tip, Taj. My friend Taj who just said that in passing. He super tapped in. I traded that, cleansed it, put it away. And the very next thing is I get this radiant white clothing. So it's like my dark aura went to a light white aura. Really cool. And that was just one of the awesome synchronicities that happened at that festival. Also ran into many good friends and got to do a talk workshop on the biofield anatomy and sound healing. That was great. There were There's an awesome turnout for that. So anyway, to connect this into the client session I had a couple of days ago, I, I, oddly enough, <laughs> I had never made this type of a call before, but this client, I was having more trouble than I've ever had. I say trouble, but it was just taking longer. It wasn't moving. There was a heart chakra block for this client. And I was coming up to the end of the time of the session and it wasn't getting unblocked. And then it dawned on me. I was like, I bet I think she's wearing an amulet with a black stone in it. That never had that thought before or that that could interfere with a client. And I didn't see her to know what she was wearing before. We were just on a phone call. And anyway, we did get the heart chakra block resolved. And I think it helped coming to the awareness of what might be part of it. But after the session, I was like, are you wearing any amulets? Are you wearing any crystals or an amulet? And show enough, she had multiple on, including obsidian and tourmaline. And so this is like a long-winded explanation of why I want to let you know that if you're working with black stones, black crystals, I'm not saying don't work with them. But what I've learned through all this is that I think that as much as they can protect energies from the outside, uh, protect you from outside energies getting in, they may also have an effect on blocking inside energies from coming out. And that would, over the course of time, cause a buildup and a blockage in whatever region that you're wearing it on. So be aware of that. I think maybe different crystals that are black may have different levels of blockiness to them. <laughs> block, black. See what I mean? Block and black have practically the same freaking letters. It's one vowel different. So it should have dawned on me a long time ago, but that's what I think is going on with that. So, you know, for whatever reason, particularly seems important to point out obsidian and moldavite as a couple that may be really strong at this. So if they're absorbing, but also stopping from passing through, uh, passing beyond, 
the difficult and challenging emotions and feelings because you're wearing them right over your heart and that energy center. I would guess that the, I mean, you want to do this with pretty much any stones anyway, but definitely take them off sometimes and cleanse them energetically, give them a bath in water or sunlight to purify them or burn sage smoke and burn the sage smoke on them, things like that. And different crystals will have different care protocols. Some crystals don't like water. Some don't like smoke. Some don't like sunlight. So you got to know your stones, but I just wanted to put that out there in case that is helpful to somebody and they may not realize that they could be blocking their own expression of their own feelings in their heart or their throat because those are the most likely places where the amulet is going to rest with some of these black stones like obsidian. And not that it's a big deal, but the other thing was too, I traded traded up. <laughs> I got a cool Laramar pendant that you see me wearing right now after after I got this white tunic. So I've totally changed up my my colors and my vibe for the year. Really excited about it. Right. So I've been talking a long time. This is a super extended outro. No problem, though. I missed you guys and excited for what will come next. We got all kinds of good things in the works for future episodes, but I'll get on out of here. Make sure that you check the show notes for links to anything we talked about or to work with me for a session. And I'm going to finish up the episode and play us out with a song by a friend of mine. Cadella is the artist and you can find the link to that also in the show notes. The song is from his new EP and this track is called Moss. So I hope you enjoy the tunes and I'll catch you guys on the flip. Much love to everybody out there. And uh, remember, you're the whole ether at once. You're all of it. You're holy. Love y'all. Bye-bye. You know, I'm the sun.